Well, I trust you can say that, not just sing that today. I, I trust that that is your trust, that you would say God is your God. And I do trust that you place all of your faith and trust in the ancient of days. What a peace, is it not, as we sing those truths that there's none above him, none before him, right? All of time is in his hand. I trust that you know that peace today. I was thinking even as we came in, all of us together enjoy this fellowship. Bricks and mortar are just bricks and mortar, but I do pray that you approach coming Sunday mornings like a place of refuge. Lies, evil, all of it. And you come and what do we do? We read truth. We sing truth. We speak truth. Beloved, I pray that's a refuge for you. It is. And we come and listen, that's just a derivative benefit of doing what he calls us to do. Sing praise, give worship to him. So let's continue to do that. You already have God's word in your hand. Just open it now to Exodus 34. Exodus 34. If you are visiting with us, another warm welcome to you. And don't have a copy of God's Word, just look in front of you, you'll see one there. Grab that, turn to the second book, 34th chapter, Exodus 34. This morning, as we come back into this chapter, we will pick up right where we left off last week. That's our aim. And where we left off last week, we were amidst renewal. Renewal that is transpiring over these two chapters, chapter 33 and 34, after the calf. Very familiar with the calf incident at this point. And this all, chapter 33, 34, in the wake of that tragic incident. And we want to be clear that this is renewal. We need to really come out front with this this morning. This is renewal. It's not revision. It's not restart. It's renewal. These chapters are not back to the drawing board. These chapters are not a change of plan. And certainly with that, these chapters are not plan B in Yahweh's book. No. After the golden calf, God didn't start again and reset with Moses. Remember, for sure though, we saw a dimension of his wrath that warranted that. And he spoke it. Because it was warranted. But Moses interceded and reminded God that they were not just a people or Moses' people, they were his people, chapter 33, 13. Following that, God proclaimed his name, do you remember? A reminder of what? Again, as we have just sung, the unchanging God, the Ancient of Days. Just a reminder of that. A God we saw in chapter 34, verse 6, that was merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abounding in what? Steadfast love, abounding in hesed. That is, remember, abounding in loyal. That's loyal love, faithful love, covenant love. That, as we saw, is God proclaimed. And an unchanging, faithful God who abounds in covenant love means that when he cuts a covenant... He fulfills it, he keeps it, he remains in it. 
So Israel's great sin has consequences, and we covered that last week. Earthly tablets, tabernacle delay. But even though there are those consequences, the relationship remains. It has been violated, but it has not been destroyed. And so Yahweh proceeds not to rewrite covenant. He's not rewriting covenant. It's not revisionist stuff here. No, that's not what he's doing. He is here to renew it. Covenant renewal continues in this chapter as we move to the next portion now. Look at it with me, starting in verse 10. We'll open our time with a reading of just this verse to lay out this section. Verse 10, chapter 34. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people, I will do marvels such as not such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Our Lord and Father God, we come in light of these words that we will continue through this morning and ask that you would open our eyes to see them to receive and understand them, Lord, and by your grace to go later, apply and live so that you would receive glory. We plead that in the name of Christ. Amen. At first glance, look at it again, it may appear as if Yahweh is starting again, right? At first glance, as if this is new, but remember our context. This is not new. These are new tablets, yes, but not new words, verse 1. This is a new presentation, verse 2, but with the same people before the same God. So what's going on here in verse 10? Well, this is, and it is our first point this morning, this is reinstitution. This is reinstitution. God has reissued words on new tablets. God has reenacted ceremony conditions on the mountain. Remember the holy mountain, verse 3. God has recited his name in all its fullness and perfection, verse 6, verse 7. And here God reinstitutes the covenant. Look again at verse 10. He said, Behold, I'm making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Those vows, as you look at them laid out in verse 10, are very similar to what we saw originally in chapter 19. Really, that's what it is. At heart, what we saw already, the inauguration in 19. This is then just like the married couple That years and often years and years after the wedding ceremony do what? They later renew their wedding vows. We're very familiar with that, right? Later on they do that. They renew and they reinstitute their marriage, if you will. Now at times this renewal ceremony is a token gesture to mark a milestone, right? That would be a common uh, reason why they renew their vows, the uh, 35th, the 40th, the 50th wedding anniversary, and so on. But more significantly, and I would submit to you, this is really the thrust of what you see when you see this, 
done well today. This renewal of vows by a married couple often takes place after what? Some great sin. The married couple will renew their vows because there's some great sin that's happened. And often it's what? Infidelity. It's adultery. There is a covenant violation that's happened between husband and wife. And by the grace of God, there's been repentance and restoration. And now a renewal of vows. In such cases, then, complete reinstitution is needed. It looks new when you attend those ceremonies, right? But it is actually what? It's not new, it's renewal. It's renewal. It looks, it sounds, it feels new because the details mimic the original day. Consider the vows, the promise, the ring at times, even the same minister. All the same, yet in reality they're not embarking on day one of marriage, are they? No, often years of marriage are behind them, just like Israel here Although rather than some 40 years behind them, it's been a mere what? 40 days. 40 days. Only 40 days have passed since the original mountain ceremony. In fact, we need a refresher of that. Flip back to 19. The original mountain ceremony. Remember the vigor. And when you consider this passage, I want you to consider a wedding day. And the vigor of the wedding day. Maybe the vows memorized. Maybe the husband and wife feeling every bit of allegiance. Nothing will make me break covenant with you, wife. Nothing will make me break covenant with you, husband. Nothing. Chapter 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and what? Keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So there's our echo in 34.10. And then this. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And how did they respond in this ceremony? And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. All the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's the original institution, the original ceremony. Of course, those were really just words, because since then they were unfaithful. Not Yahweh, of course, he was faithful. That's why we're still here in renewal in this text. But it is Yahweh, the faithful one, that reinstitutes. He says, verse 10, I am making a covenant So you flip back to 34. He says, I am making a covenant, or you could say it this way, I had made a covenant. If you look at the verb behind that, I am making, it's in a tense that can refer to a previous event. It has the range to include that. The present tense in this case, however, brings out the very fresh reinstitution. The vow is the same, but now it's renewed. One final comment on this reinstitution in this verse. Consider how these words fall. Look at them. God says he will do marvels and an awesome thing he will do with you, Israel. What stirring promise is reinstituted here? Do you see it? The great hope after great sin. You certainly must feel that as you read this passage. 
Beloved, that is the God of Israel here, dispensing what? Abundant mercy and grace. That's what's needed after great sin. Renewing, reinstituting what should be revised, what should be returned, what you could argue should be replaced. No. Lamentations 3, 22, 23. The steadfast love of the Lord, his has said, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. That is covenant truth of a covenant-keeping God. And to go with that truth, Proverbs twenty-four sixteen. what does that look like when you live under a covenant faithful God? Proverbs twenty-four sixteen. for the righteous falls seven times and rises again. Only possible under a faithful God. Listen, church, what is true of Israel's God is true of your God, the same God. And the glories of the mystery revealed in the New Testament is that you and me and the church have been brought into, we would say, been grafted into this covenant relationship with Yahweh. Isn't that astounding? That we, Gentiles, would be grafted into what you're reading here. And accidents, this covenant God, this covenant relationship. If you are in Christ this morning, yes, if you are in Christ this morning, you are, listen to this, a joint heir through God. Galatians 4 verse 7. You're a co-heir. That means this reinstitution we see in ancient Israel in the wilderness has implications for you and me today. This is not just ancient reading for Israel at that time. This is to infuse, empower, and strengthen your time today as God's people. This is, then, the same God that you serve, church. And if you indeed have faith in him, belief in the seed of promise, belief in the same Messiah, the Christ, then listen, you enjoy reinstitution Or we would say it this way, you enjoy reinstitution reality each time you repent, rise up, and vow again. And when you do that, you can say to the Lord, praise him that I even can. That is the fruit of covenant renewal in Christ. That is new covenant implication. But let's now return to Sinai. And the renewal we're seeing here next, we have first reinstitution. Now we're going to see removal. Removal. We continue in the next section, starting in verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you're invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make For yourself, any gods of cast metal. You know, you look at these verses and these commands, it is true, is it not? They take their significance in all their vivid detail from what has just transpired with the calf, do they not? 
All of a sudden you're reading tough passages like this and you realize, yes, these words are needed. Consider the last verse again on that point. Look at verse 17. You shall not make for yourself what? Any gods of cast metal. We still have the images of the golden calf in our mind. We recognize exactly what Yahweh is doing here in this renewal. In fact, preceding that verse, God will get very specific in what making other gods looks like. That's what is going on here. Not only making them, but worshiping them. In fact, Yahweh will lay out a series of, did you catch it, removal instructions. And they are strong. But before we get to that removal, I want us to consider what Yahweh removes. Let's look at verse 11 specifically for a moment. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Of course, it would be all manner nationality in the promised land, the Canaanites proper, we would say. Now, before we're tempted to move quickly past that verse, because we can, can't we? And what do we think? Yes, I know those nationalities. I know the promise restated, those promised land nations. Yes, Yahweh will give the land. Verse 12, before we do that, look closely at verse 11. This is not a restatement on simply giving the land, is it? This is, in fact, in this renewal, something you haven't seen yet in Exodus. Look again. God says what? I will drive out before you those foreign nations. God says, note it, I will drive out. Prior to this, if you recall, God has said this, that he would bring Israel to the land. Exodus 13, twice in Exodus 3. Back in Genesis, God said he would give the land to Abraham's offspring, Genesis 15. Here, though, before any giving or bringing is restated, God says, I will be doing a removal in the promised land. Do you see that? God says, I will be doing something in the promised land. In the wake of covenant renewal, this must be understood. This must be understood. Listen, just like... You have covenant struck in Genesis 12, in Genesis 15, right? God's first move, you see so too here. Beloved, it is true, and we can't say this enough, God must do the work first. And here we see that before there is any settling in the promised land, and note it, any Israelite action at all, Before we even get to what Israel must do, God must do first. And in this case, there needs to be removal. And that first action seen here is God's alone. God says, I will drive out these foreign nations. I want you to note, he doesn't ask for help, does he? He doesn't say, this is going to be a big one. need some help here. No, he just simply says, I will do this. God declares, I will do this first. Here in God's covenant action, then Westmount, we see a timeless principle. Please don't miss this. A bedrock principle of covenant, and listen, specifically of covenant relationship with Yahweh, and it's this, that God must act, more specifically, God must remove first. 
Beloved, this truth is fundamental to our relationship with God. We must grasp this. For example, in salvation, the beginning of our relationship with Yahweh, in salvation, God must remove first. Bill took us through this and undergirding the argument of the Galatians is this principle. There is nothing you can do to remove. Nothing. The obstacle of sin and penalty Right? Needs to be removed by another. The barrier to eternal life is not something you can get your tools out and remove yourself. To be saved is to have your sin removed. And friends, let us be clear and just settle for a few seconds. You cannot do that work. You can't. There's nothing you can do to remove the obstacles to a holy God. You're powerless, like Israel here. You need another to do it. In fact, you need a perfect one to do it. And in this case, as we see the early stages of God's people, God does it. He sent this message to the Israelites that would be a timeless message and principle for God's people. And God maybe says to you today, I must act first. Maybe he has quickened your heart to see that for the first time. That there is indeed nothing you can do in the wake of maybe a reality that you've done everything to add that is wrong. Maybe your eyes are quickened to see this. Here in Israel, but listen, the principle is this. He sent his son to do the work of removing the sin penalty. Because that penalty must be driven out. If we are going to stand in God's presence and be justified in his sight, it must be removed. Before there can be any sense of relationship, this is the great hoodwink of today. You cannot keep your sin. You cannot pet it and put it on a shelf and just add a word or two about Jesus. It doesn't work that way. You can't do that and think you're going to have right relationship with God. Matthew 7 is terrifying with the truth for those that think that they would do that on that day when they say, Lord, Lord. It must be removed, beloved, to have any relationship. And here is the joy. Uh, It is my great privilege to herald this to you over and over again. It must happen. Feel the weight. But you can do nothing about it. God has done it. He's done it. It is finished. For those that recognize and turn. Only Christ can remove your sin effectively, perfectly, and completely. And so we see the principle in the life of Israel's future security here. Before they do anything, what a principle for our life. Before they do anything, God must do the first thing. And here it is to drive out the foreign nations, the ungodly that stand in the way. Of course, you're thinking in the book of Joshua, we get a preview of that conquest. But of course, that's just partially, right? It's just a preview, just a snapshot. Israel, along with the church, and here it is, will future experience this fully. At the return of our head, Jesus Christ, the great remover, the second coming, the Christ. Here, the promise of removal is stated clearly in this covenant renewal. Now, 
That's one. That's God's removal work, which only he can do, and I pray that's clear. What follows then, the logical implication of this, right? the truth that flows from it, the truth that presses to our heart, is a series of removal commands that God issues to his people. So in other words, catch this. I have done the first work. I've done the thing that only I can do. I've done the great removing. Now here are the implications, my people, of that removal work. Important to get that sequence. First, in verse 12, God issues a warning to Israel. Look at it. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become what? A snare in your midst. Again, we just feel the intensity here, the force. Such commands, in fact, have their intense force in the wake of the golden calf. Israel so easily enamored with all that is pagan, right? Even just a casual reading of their account in the wilderness, you get this thrust. Enamored with statues, enamored with with feasts and all licentiousness, enamored, in fact, with Egyptian fish and leeks and onions when they're delivered, still wanting that. God says here, any covenant, and let's be clear, that is any partnership, any yoking, any joining, any allegiance with the inhabitants of Canaan, look at it, will be a snare to you. By snare, we mean stumble. By snare, we mean something that will pull you away from what is right and what is good. And by snare, we mean, like any hunter will tell you, something that inevitably is deadly. In fact, the hunter hopes that it leads to death. Not to mention that Israel, you already have a covenant with Yahweh. To be snared away under another covenant you think you'll strike with them, you're already in covenant with Yahweh. So, like serving two masters, you can't live out the terms of covenant to both. The text does not need to explain this, as Israel, in fact, has already illustrated it for us. Remember the ornaments adorned on their body? The ornaments carried out of Egypt were the snare to what? Source the calf. The lustful feast, do you remember that? The playing, the dancing, the revelry. That they knew in Egypt so well they would have lived in that. Became the snare that was an excuse for licentiousness. Let's make a calf. Oh yes, to the Lord. But let's make a calf and do this. To the Lord, of course. Israel may have been removed from Egypt, but Egypt was not removed from Israel. As such, God in this covenant renewal here will lay down clear removal instructions. We see three specific removals in verse 13. Look at them. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. Very clear. Ashram here, by the way, refers to the tall, carved, sacred poles. They came to symbolize pagan worship. It would be some specific associations with Baal and so on. But generally here, they're referring to these sacred poles of false religion. They were the beacons of pagan worship. Not unlike golden statues, these poles would be icons of idolatry and false religion. Notice the items with the ashram, the pillars, see it, and the altars. This was a system of worship. It was a whole system. Note that. And here in the text, you see God saying of these ungodly snares. This is what you see in the text, right? He says, ignore them. Israel, just pretend they're not there. Work around the ashram. 
That's what you see, right? No. No, maybe you see this. He says, find another use for those poles. Israel, let's be industrious. Let's be clever. I want you to repurpose those idols. I want you to find a use for that pagan idol. No, it does not say that. Well, maybe it says this. Israel, redeem them. In fact, here's a really good idea from Yahweh. Just add Christian labels to something of the world and it makes it holy, right? Holy this, holy that. How about holy ashram? That'll make it okay. Or no, what about this? Just a little bit of them. Do we see Yahweh saying this? Just a little bit of them. It's okay, Israel. I get it. You're swimming in it. I get it. They're everywhere. You had a hard day. It's understandable. That's what you see in the text, right? Church, sadly, we could go on. I restrain. That's just a few. And they're so sadly relevant, are they not? We could go on and on. That, of course, is our removal plan. Our moving company looks at it that way. I'm willing to entertain anything if I can just keep a little bit of the ashram. In our battle against snare removal, we dare not be caught going to extremes. Dare not be caught going to extremes. Don't be so extreme. Don't be so rigid. Don't be so legal. As such, we tolerate and live with all manner of snares and ashram. In the wake of that reality, consider how God defines removal here, and now we must look at this plainly. What does he say? Tear down the altars. Break the pillars. Cut down the ashram. Westmount, I ask you this. Is there any faint hint of a suggestion that anything would remain when you're done with this removal? Nothing. Not a trace. You obliterate it. Is the text clear? That is complete removal. And of course, this is not an isolated principle. You would say, oh, these Old Testament principles, right? I'm just a New Testament Christian. Aren't we all? Mark 9, turn to Mark 9. Z read this for us this morning. These texts that are just so uncomfortable and inconvenient in the New Testament, aren't they? Verse 43, and this is right out of the mouth, the physical mouth of Jesus Christ. He says this in verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Wow. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. It doesn't stop there. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Not done yet. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Indeed, that kind of removal would hurt, right? And I pray, I know we went through this in the Gospel of Mark. Let's remove... Any kind of trivial look at this, like, I don't understand. Do I actually cut my eye? No, no, no. We all know. In fact, can I be bold enough this morning and say, because this is one of the texts people say, I don't understand what's going on. Westmount, you are mature enough. You know exactly what's going on in that text. The question is, do you do it? Do you remove? What is your removal like? When the great remover has done the thing that you can't do, living in light of that, what is your removal? Out of the mouth of Jesus, back to Exodus. 
Listen, that kind of removal, like it would for Israel, would hurt, right? You could imagine, oh, look at the marble altar. Just can I preserve a bit of that? I want to bring it into my tent. Oh, the pole, look at the carvings. If I even just snap it out of this, it could be a really good showpiece. No, destroy it. And that would hurt, wouldn't it? Any good artisan, any good steward, any good appreciator of all things, right, that would have some sort of functional use would say, oh, this hurts to destroy it. You don't see God referring to that. He just says, tear it down, break it. Listen, beloved, understand this principle in this text. If you're saying, well, that's really hard to do. We say, yes, it is. Snare removal is always hard. I know there's many fishermen in the audience, right? You ever wonder as you're taking the hook out of the fish's mouth, it's like, wow, this feels great, right? That snare that caught them. Removing those snares is painful. How much more for us? It's because pursuing holiness isn't easy. It is hard. And in fact, here it is, beloved. It's so hard we avoid it. Hebrews 12.4 In your struggle against sin, have you not resisted to the point of shedding blood? Again, any wonder in a pain-averse time as this, in such a pain-averse time as this, is it any wonder we struggle in shedding blood for our holiness? No church like Israel, you remove, you tear down, you break, you cut down. That was Israel's command upon promised land entry. And it was an imperative, by the way. Because verse 14, and look at the reasoning, the underpinning. This is incredible what God is laying out for his people here. What? God is a jealous God. That's a direct reference to the second commandment. Remember the second word. This is the reason why you shall have no other gods before me, because I'm a jealous God, God says. In this covenant renewal, Israel is reminded of the terms, the covenant law, the ten words. God tolerates no rivals to his worship, none. God's people are to worship him alone. And that's because covenant is exclusive. Now, we've lost this today. Lost this in a worship buffet that we have today. But covenant with Yahweh is exclusive. Practically, if you allow this Israel, if you do not remove these pagan emblems, look at verse 15, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. That is strong language, but graphically accurate. And a correct assessment. The original, by the way, there for whore, you look at that word, and I know that's a strong word, but it gives you the force again. That's a word that's akin to prostitute, and we, of course, know that word. That is the picture, yes, that the Word of God is telling us. That is the picture of what it is like, Israel, to have other gods before you. Every word inspired. You are covenanted to me, Yahweh says. To lust after another god is akin to adultery. Why is this important to see clearly? If we were to turn to Numbers 25, you can just note this. We would see before Israel even gets to the promised land, they're residing in the Moabite region, they're just about to go across the Jordan and shit him there in Numbers 25, and they go after 
the daughters of Moab. They lust after them. And if it wasn't for the zeal of Phineas, who knows how many more would have died that day. And that's for another time. But just note that. They don't, here's the point, they don't even get into the promised land. And they're behaving that way. And of course, like Exodus 32, and this is your link between Numbers 25 and Exodus 32, the end for those that don't repent is the same. Death. Plague. So, beloved, listen, this is important. This is not a respectable sin. This is not just another sin. The Word of God tells us this is gross sin. The Word of God illustrates that this is death. So that's why this is important. Thus, in Exodus 34 then, Israel, God says, in the context of covenant removal, when death is at stake, remove, remove. Remove the snares of the pagan people around you, lest they make you sin. Remove the snares, for I'm a jealous God that tolerates no rival. Remove the snares before you fall to prostitution with other gods. Westmont, consider, ask a spouse that has suffered adultery. Ask a spouse that has suffered adultery if this can be said strong enough. You know what they'll say. You can never say it strong. Or you can never keep saying it strong. You can say it again and again. The spouse that suffered adultery, the spouse that's covenanted with someone, they would say, say it, because that's what it is. And in that case, we recognize earthly is one thing, with God is something else. With a spouse that's perfect, We know this covenant adultery then. As such, we we don't back down from the word of God. Like Israel in the wake of our jealous God and our covenant renewals, beloved, we remove. One more section here. Removal, yes, and also finally remembrance. Look at verse 18. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. At the time appointed in the Mount of Abib, for the month, Abib, you came out from Egypt, all that opened the womb or mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year, all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Church, if removal was the negative action we saw in the verses prior, right? The do not command. Then here in these verses we just read, we see the positive action, the do this command. And contained here a number of remembrances we've seen before. First, the call to keep and observe the feasts. You see that all three of these feasts we've covered before. And all three, listen, not looking back 
to Egypt or ahead to Canaan. But all three feasts are rooted in the Exodus. All three designed to fix Israel's mind on their God and the work of their God. First, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Look at verse 18. Introduced in Exodus 13, reminded in Exodus 23. Do you remember that memorial feast that marked the quick exit out of Egypt? Can't leaven the bread? No time for that. We've got to run. We've got to go. The seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread directly followed the Passover. So you had that tenth plague, and then you have in symbol, then right after that, you would celebrate the Feast of Leaving Egypt. Israel is to mark that feast during the season of Abib. Remember, Abib means green grain. It's about the time of April when it would sprout. This first annual feast was tied to spring and Passover, the most important time of the year. Then the Feast of Weeks, look at verse 22. Or, as it's called in chapter 23, the Feast of Harvest, fittingly. Remember that feast took place in late May, early June, And here we learn it was a feast that marked the first fruits of the wheat harvest. A feast to remind Israel that first fruits no longer went to their old master. No longer went to Egypt. They were free. And as such a feast to remind them of the truth, look at verse 26, this truth, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. Listen, the first fruits are always Yahweh's. Just like the firstborn, you see it in verse 19. In fact, the firstborn comes with a redemption price, and we've covered this already. The first fruit is offered, the firstborn is redeemed, all required by Yahweh of his people. None were allowed to appear before God empty-handed. Look at the end of verse 20. None were to appear empty-handed. Israel, you were delivered from Egypt, that master, but delivered to serve Yahweh. Finally, the Feast of Ingathering, look at verse 22, also known as the Feast of Booths. That's what it's referred to in the New Testament. This remembrance feast was toward the end of the year. This would have taken place in the fall. If you recall, this feast marked the end of harvest, the full yield of a year of plenty. The feast was a reminder that God provided all of it. All that was reaped was from God. That's the point. So one remembrance feast marked the offering of the first to God, and here another remembrance feast to mark that all the harvest, anything reaped, was from God. Israel, you were heading to a promised land, flowing with milk, honey, and here harvest. Right? That's where you're going. And all of it that you will gain and you will reap is provided to you by Yahweh in his abundant love and faithfulness. And so in verse 23, Israel is reminded again, look at it, three times a year, the men, the family heads, would appear before the tabernacle, later the temple, to mark these feasts before the Lord. Three important annual feasts. Along with the feasts in this covenant renewal is another remembrance, and this one, the reminder of rest. Look at verse 21. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. Sabbath and Sabbath rest we've covered at length in our Exodus study. However, there is one noticeable detail in this verse that warrants a mention. Look at the end of the verse, 21. It says, in plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. That is plowing and harvest time. Two very important times of the year for the farmer. In fact, the farmer would say, I am so busy, I can't do anything else but plow, but harvest. Say it another way, if we would catch the uh, sweep 
of that statement. This is all times of the year. In all times of the year, you mark the Sabbath. And we mention this here because it's another caution here for Israel that there's no excuse for not keeping Sabbath. So they couldn't say, I'm too busy plowing or harvesting to keep the day. Beloved, you see the principle here. God says there's no time or situation that cancels the holy day. By the way, in verse 24, God covers another excuse for law-breaking. He's got it all covered here. And here with feasts, look at verse 24. I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. Covet, in other words, has a sense someone's going to covet it, and while you're away, they're going to pillage your land. In fact, you could say in view here would be the Israelite. You can imagine the protest. I can't do what you're asking, Yahweh. I can't leave my place and my fields to go up before the Lord at those annual feasts. I just can't do that. What of my neighbor coveting my stuff? We look at that and we recognize we have all manner of reasons for not obeying God's law, don't we? And often, and here's the point of these two, often they sound very good, don't they? Plowing, harvesting, coveting, you would understand that, Lord. And here God says, look at it, worry not. I watch over the land and expand borders, he says. Again, whether Israel or us, church, there's no hall pass for disobedience here. Related to that, and last reminder, God repeats that they're a holy people. In verse 25, we have almost a word-for-word repeat of laws found earlier. Chapter 23, verses 18, 19. And all three are reminders of practices forbidden under God. Look at them. Do not eat the blood of a sacrifice. Do not leave any sacrifice portions for the morning. And do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And why are those forbidden? Some seem pretty neutral, right? What's wrong with the leftovers of the sacrifice? Well, you remember all three of those commands, as you look at them, set Israel apart from who? Canaan. That's what Canaanites did. Canaanites approached sacrifices that way. In Israel, you're not like them. Israel, Yahweh says, I am your God. And in this covenant renewal, I remind you of that. Think about this in the wake of the calf, feasting like they do. I'm taking you to a land not to blend into a people, but to be set apart as people. Those practices are theirs, not mine. As my people, you're to be a holy people. And of course, to be a holy people is to be a people set apart and fully devoted to God. Thrust of that covenant truth is capped with this, verse 27. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, For in accordance with these words, I've made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he's there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Israel, you're reminded this covenant is between you and Yahweh, not Canaan, not Canaan. You're not yoked to Canaan. And verse 28, to mark this renewal, Moses ascends the mountain. Look at it again, 40 more days, 40 more nights. Yes, a second journey up the mountain by Moses for Israel, because, in case you're wondering, this is not looking back on the first 40 days. This is 40 days done again. Deuteronomy 10.10, by the way, confirms this when Moses retells the wilderness account. Yes, another 40 days on the mountain without bread and water. That's 80 days. 
almost three months without bread and water, one man on the mountain. How is that physically possible? How would he sustain? Interestingly, one could ask the same of Israel, how would they last another 40 days with Moses away? Who knows what manner of trouble they'll get into? Well, the answer, as we'll see, is common to both. Common to all of God's people of all times when tasked by God and they ask, how can I hold up? How can I remain? How can I obey? And providentially, next week, both the text and the calendar will answer this question for us. So let's leave it there for now. Father in heaven, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the great reminder that you give us through this Exodus account, Lord, that you and you alone are holy. You and you alone, by way of your Son, the great remover, the one that does what we cannot. And we thank you, Lord, that you don't just give us your law and command. You give us, by way of your Son, by way of your Spirit, the strength to do and live for you. So God, in light of this text, please help us to do so, we pray. Amen.